0: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind,
0: listener mail this is Robert Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And we're back in the mailbag overfloweth. It is it is quite hefty this week, so we're going to be catching up, I assume, for the next few uh, mailbag episodes. But Rob, if you're ready, I think I'm going to jump into some messages that we got about the three-pupiled-eye episodes. All right, this is from Rob. I assume this, this is not me. from you. We're not having another Seth writes into <laughs> listener mail uh, type situation. Okay, uh, this is from some other Rob. Rob says In the second pupil episode, uh, you mentioned the interesting fact that the uh, Chinese word for pupil. And then Rob says that this contains the word child, making a connection between a small child and the tiny reflected image seen in somebody else's eye. I might have missed it, but I don't think you mentioned that our own word pupil comes from the same idea. It comes from the Latin pupilla, meaning little girl or doll. Comparing a pupil to a child is actually very common cross-linguistically. The Greek, kore, can mean either girl or pupil. The Irish, mac imrisk, literally means child of the iris. The Hebrew, Ishon literally means little man. The Turkish, gozbebegi, literally means I, baby. Mm. <laughs> creepy. Um, these are not merely translations of a phrase original to one language. They seem to have been coined independently in many unrelated languages. Apparently in ancient times, the little reflection of yourself that you saw in somebody, somebody else's pupil was considered the most remarkable thing about this body part. Thanks for making such a great show, Rob. Ah, yeah, that's,
1: that's, uh, that's wonderful. I didn't know about the, uh, the eye babies of Turkish there. Um, (laughs) <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Uh one of the the weird the weird coincidence here, I happened to watch the old uh animated version of The Last Unicorn this week. And uh it'd been a long time since I've seen it and I'd only ever read half of the book with my son. I think it was a library book we ended up returning it. I, I will say I think as far as the movie goes, first half much better than the later, latter half. Uh, first half has uh, mm-hmm. all the good stuff with the uh, Mommy Fortuna and the the Harpy, and uh, also has the best America songs. Uh, the America songs in the in the second half of the film. Um, my son even noticed that they were not up to, up to snuff. He was like, Why is this song so bad? And I'm like, Well,
0: <laughs> which half is, is Horse with oh, No There's Name? There's no Horse
1: them. with No Name in this. This is post Horse oh, okay. with No Name America. This is when they, they weren't, they, they don't sound that much like Neil Young in this. This is, yeah, you have, you have some, real, some real good ones. You got the Last Unicorn theme song itself. You have Man's Road; uh, those are both really good. But anyway, the, my point about eyes movies. is there's a there's a whole uh, thing in it about uh, you know the evil unicorn hoarding king uh, Haggard, who is voiced by you know, marvelously by uh, by Christopher Lee. He has this whole thing where we have this unicorn that's this, this, that is uh, disguised as a human woman in the shape of a human woman, and he suspects something is up when he cannot see his own reflection in her eyes and later on as she mm. becomes more human she's losing her unicornness and becoming more human he can see his reflection in her eyes
0: interesting detail yeah, yeah.
1: and uh, there's probably like i say i haven't read the second half of the book but i, I imagine uh, the author here is um uh, and of, co- it's, of course peter s beagle I wonder if he's getting into something about uh, the idea of possession, uh, because, of course, this is a greedy, um, miserable uh, individual who uh, is, nothing makes him happy in life, except occasionally the fact that he's collected all the unicorns, but one in the world and hit and hidden them away in the surf. You know, there's something about uh, the idea of something that he cannot possess fully that, that he does not see himself in, perhaps. Anyway, unicorn fans, write in, let us know. All right. This next one comes to us from uh, is this. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I guess Baron is writing in. Uh, I think someone is calling themselves Baron. Okay. Eton. All right. That that is the name. Okay, they Okay. Titles are cool. Uh, the the Baron writes. Good evening. This is Baron <laughs> Eaton, and I had to take a moment to at least address the multiple pupils for the Irish legends and the link to beauty. The first example that popped into my head is the classic Dungeons and Dragons magical item the eyes of and its items plural uh, and you would insert the power of the deity here uh the baron says typically they would be glasses of some sort monocle uh, bifocals or other lenses. Since the lenses would not be purely flat, they could have uh, multiple facets that would allow the wearer to see into the future, see through illusions, and spot hidden treasures.
0: Rob, you have experience with these things? I don't think I've ever gotten to the point where I had eyes of a DM. I have D&D. never
1: uh, made these available as a DM, and uh, no DM has made them available to me, but they sound pretty fun. <laughs> they also sound like maybe they're. Maybe they're a little difficult to weave into a campaign. I don't know. Uh, I'd let DMs mm-hmm. and players write in and correct us on that if, if I'm wrong. Anyway, the Baron continues. The person viewing the Sears would see multiple irises through the gem, and it could be clear enough to do so. Since the type of gem would be associated with mystical powers and wealth, it could be easily tied into the idea of a multi-pupiled human especially since most things in the early before times were rife with symbolism. It would be a quick way to describe a monocle if you uh, if you didn't have the words to describe a monocle. Love the episodes. You all keep giving me great ideas for games, characters,
0: and monsters. Much appreciated. Oh, well, many thanks to the Baron. Okay, so if I understand what you're saying in the second half, it's that maybe there would have been a case in the ancient world where somebody was looking through some kind of complex transparent object, like a maybe a gem with multiple facets or something that had some refractive properties that caused the eye to appear in multiple surfaces on the gem or lens uh, to the person looking at them. So it might look like they had multiple pupils or multiple irises. Uh, I love this idea as it relates to D&D. As far as relating to to something from actual Irish history, I'm intrigued, but I would have some doubts. Uh, the last time I read about this, I think the historical consensus was that spectacles didn't really exist before the late Middle Ages. Though there are some individual objects that have been used as uh, sort of uh, more, more specific case magnification aids and, and other visual aids in the ancient world. So a few examples came to mind while I was thinking about this before we recorded one is uh, these these lenses from around the ancient mediterranean and mesopotamia Though I think in most cases, it's actually debated whether these were really used for magnification purposes, such as for reading text or as a craft worker's aid, or whether they were simply decorative items. Uh, Isn't that what we talked about in our sort of history of lenses episodes? Yeah, we did, I think, more than one
1: episode, didn't we? We talked about lenses. I know we did one on sunglasses, and by virtue of getting into sunglasses, Mm -hmm. got into the idea of spectacles.
0: Maybe we did an episode on spectacles, too. I don't know. It all blurs together. Well, I think we've done the telescope and we did sunglasses, so we addressed lenses in multiple ways. But, uh, yeah, so I I think there's debate over to what extent some of these lens artifacts were actually used for magnification or not. Uh, I, I don't know if this still holds up, but I also remember reading claims at some point about ancient Romans using glass spheres to magnify small text in manuscripts and of course, there's that great story Pliny the Elder tells about how the emperor Nero, uh, of course, he would enjoy watching people kill each other in the arena, but he liked to do he liked to watch it reflected in a green gem that Pliny calls a smaragdus. So uh, to read from the Natural History. Quote, "even when the vision has been fatigued with intently viewing other objects it is refreshed by being turned upon the stone and lapidaries know of nothing that is more gratefully soothing to the eyes its soft green tints being wonderfully adapted for assuaging lassitude when felt in those organs and then later he says" When the surface of the Smaragdus is flat, it reflects the image of objects in the same manner as a looking glass. The Emperor Nero used to view the combats of the gladiators upon a Smaragdus. Uh, so I guess one imagines he's like holding up this green gem like a mirror and then looking back behind him at the at the gladiators whacking each other with swords and throwing the nets mm. and stuff. So I, I don't know. I mean, a few interesting examples of Possible magnification devices, lenses, gems, and stuff like that that would have been used in the ancient world. Though I don't know if any of this stuff would have uh, ever shown up, would have been known in ancient Ireland. Uh, I have to say, I was
1: immediately reminded of the scene in Disney's Snow White where Dopey the dwarf. uh, It's kind of it's kind of uh, frightening to look at actually now, where he takes two giant gemstones and he like like lodges them in his eye sockets and then it makes it look like he
0: has uh, um, you know multiple irises and pupils per eye yeah kind of yeah like a big big dopey fly i believe that is what the exactly what the baron is <laughs> suggesting here all right anyway i am going to read this next message from taylor Taylor says, "Hey Robin Joe, I just finished listening to part 2 of the three pupils die, and unless I'm forgetting something from part 1, you missed an opportunity to discuss a wonderfully weird example of multiple pupils in nature. The genus Anableps, also known as four-eyed fish, are a genus of fish native to brackish waters in Central America and northern South America. The four-eyed fish does not in fact have four eyes, but it does have four pupils, sort of." Species in the genus Anableps spend their life at the surface of brackish estuaries, where they peek above the water to watch for insect prey. When the opportunity presents itself, the four-eyed fish leaps from the water to consume inattentive arthropods. However, Anableps are not particularly large. Like our beloved house cats, these species are both predator and prey, and must watch the waters below for approaching piscine predators. What's a fish to do if it needs to keep its eyes in the sky and the water at once? Evolution has produced an incredible answer, two pupils per eye, or rather, one hourglass-shaped pupil per eye, that constricts in the middle in such a fashion that the fish appears to have four pupils. When Anableps rests near the top of the water, the upper halves of its pupils are held above the water to watch for prey, and the lower halves remain below the water to watch for predators. The neatest feature of this adaptation to me is that the lenses of the fish's eyes are bifocal to account for the different diffraction of light in air and water this strange fish has split the function of its eyes in half to adapt to its liminal place at the surface of the water please check out some pictures of this bizarre fish and thank you for continuing to create weird wonderful and uh ooh edutaining content to fill the slower hours of my days all the best Taylor, are you not edutained people? <laughs> yeah. I have to say, I was not familiar
1: with this uh, fish, but I just looked up some wonderful images of it. And yeah, the, these eyes are remarkable. It is very much kind of an hourglass sit- looking situation in many of these shots where it, it's as if the, uh, an oval shaped pupil has been pinched in the middle, uh, allowing a portion above and a portion below the water.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool.
3: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought
0: to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
1: All right, here's one from Kat in response to our seven-day work uh, or seven-day week uh, episodes. Uh, Kat writes, Hi there. Did I miss the part where the mythology science, my science, boys, that's us, I, I, I assume, talk about the English names for the days of the week. I am surprised I didn't hear you at least mention it. I recall how you mentioned the planetary names a few times, Saturday, Saturn, Sunday, Sun, Monday, Moon, but I didn't hear any mention of the other half uh, as the Norse god days: Tuesday, Tears; Wednesday, Woden or Odin; Thursday, Thor's; and Friday, Freya. Some people might be thinking, "What planet is Thursday?" Ha ha. <laughs> also, I'm curious, why use Norse gods? Doesn't seem uh, market related or anything, unless it is days of worship. Also, why half Roman and half Norse gods? Love the show. You guys are the best. Cat.
0: Thank you, Cat. Uh, I-, I think the answer here is just that the modern English language inherits both Roman and Germanic or Norse cultural influences. So uh, the names of the days of the week trace back to Old English or Anglo-Saxon, the language of the Anglo-Saxons. You know, this is the language that Beowulf is written in. And this language was also influenced by Roman religion because Britain was occupied by Rome for hundreds of years, uh, from like the first century until I think sometime in the fifth century AD. So uh, Saturday still has the name of the Roman god Saturn. You've got you've got that Roman influence. I think the Sunday and Monday probably also come from the Roman influence. But then, yeah, other days of the week come from the names of these gods that have uh, Norse or Germanic pagan origins. All right, if we're moving on to the next email... Uh, Let's see. But before we get into this one, I just want to say part of the background for it is uh, you remember in the the seven days of the week uh, we talked about how uh, there was this scholar who wrote a book on the history of the week, and uh, in one of the interviews we read, he speculated that. Life in which a life in which the seven day week is an important organizing principle might seem subjectively to go by faster than other schemes, such as monthly organization or maybe longer market weeks or something. I think he mainly cited just like letters from the past in times when the week was in ascendancy and becoming more uh, front of people's minds. He said that people seem to be talking more and more often about how the time seems to be flying by uh the you know that could be a coincidence or just his uh, mistaken impression and jacob in this next message has some great perspective to provide as someone in the rather unique position of having lived under multiple radically different regimes of time so i love this email uh rob did you want to read this one
1: sure yeah all right here we go this one is from jacob jacob uh says the following hey everyone love the show so far <laughs> <laughs> I hope not to disappoint you. Um, I was introduced to your podcast by an old friend who worked with me and endured the first of the schedules I'll describe below. I just listened to the three-part series on the seven-day week, and towards the end of part three, there were some musings on whether or not life seems faster when you break it down by week. And I do not believe so. So long as there is a cycle, I think it seems just as long when averaged over time. The short version is I've lived on a three-week cycle with 18-hour days instead of 24, and now I work a schedule that repeats every 35 days. In the case of the former, I think there was some time dilation due to the circadian rhythm-wrecking schedule. In the case of the latter schedule, any given week will vary significantly, but over time, I think it averages out. In between working these two schedules, I worked a regular Monday through Friday, as most Americans do. In the case of the former schedule, the three-week cycle with 18-hour days, uh, that was what US submarines did on deployment when I was in. We didn't uh, even care about the 24-hour day, instead organizing our lives around three sections of six-hour watches yielding an 18-hour day. When I was junior and didn't need to know the date, I drove the boat. Uh, If we were deep, I could mark the time of day by chow and the weeks by a cleaning ritual known as field day. As I got more senior, I had to be cognizant of time and date, but rest assured, I'd forget when I got off watch if I had no obligations. Every 21 days, you'd stand watch at the same time and day as you did before, so the cycle was effectively a three-week one. Weeks seemed long because of the 18-hour day and the various things that could cut into your sleep, but over time, I think 21-day periods would start to blur together the same way weeks do. In the case of the latter schedule, the 35-day cycle, that is the modified DuPont that is very common across the power system operations world. In 35 days, I'll have worked seven-day shifts of 12 hours, seven-night shifts of 12 hours, and four training days of 10 hours. Power plant operators tend to work a similar schedule of 28 days without the training week. Any given week in that rotation will be different from a work perspective, and that will make a different schedule for someone's personal life. The average American's work week is closest to my training week of 40 hours in four days with three days off. I also have a week where I work three-day shifts and three-night shifts with 24 hours in between, which is very different uh, compared to the built-in weeks off I have within that schedule. By the end of my 35-day cycle, I think time will have felt similar to five weeks. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, If we were to look at 15 weeks or 105 days, I don't think the few day walkers on a submarine who don't organize their (laughs) lives around standing watch will feel they spent more or less time on deployment than those who've gone through the five of the 21-day cycles most of us lived on. I don't think three of my 35-day cycles would feel any longer or shorter than 15 of your seven-day cycles. Anyways, I hope this was uh, or is a useful perspective on a show that aired three weeks ago or during the week off in my
0: 35-day cycle. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Jacob. Uh, well, this is a great email. I, I love the reference to the day walkers on the submarine. So if I'm understanding you right, you're saying that like on a submarine, there will be people who are living according to a regular 24 hour day schedule. And then there are other people walking amongst them who are living this, this 18 hour day cycle. Uh, that sounds chaotic and, and I almost imagine a kind of like Eloy and Morlock situation emerging. (laughs)
1: Uh, It's great to hear from somebody who has experience on a submarine like this. I'm reminded of an older episode that we did called Troubled Sleep in the Arcs of Doom. Uh, that was looking at sleep studies uh, pertaining to individuals who served on submarines. Uh, and uh, yeah. I remember it being very, rather fascinating because, yeah, you're essentially dealing with this, this artificial world set off from, the, from night and day and the rest of reality
0: never exposed to sunlight, probably working weird cycles that don't line up with our, our 24-hour yeah. programming. Yeah,
1: yeah. I remember a lot of discussions in the paper about it about it being a, a job that could be both exceedingly boring, but also still very stressful due to uh, various factors from the environment to sort of the, the nature of the mission, et cetera. So anyway, yeah,
0: Jacob, thanks for writing in. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
3: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you will get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig for details. Today's episode is brought to you by
0: Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all.
2: There's joy in every journey.
0: All right, Rob, you ready for a little bit of Weird House Cinema Yeah, feedback? let us have it. Okay, this first one is from Jane. Jane says, hi, Rob and Joe. Just a quick note to thank you for choosing The Abominable Dr. Fibes as the subject for your latest Weird House Cinema. Growing up in 70s Britain, this was a late night staple on TV, and it came to be one of my uh, my absolute favorites. If you hadn't beaten me to it, I was all set to request that you do a Weird House Vincent Price trilogy consisting of Fibes 1, Fibes 2, plus (laughs) Theater of Blood, which I was also thrilled to hear you mention. In fact, I watched Theater of Blood again not two weeks ago for the umpteenth time, and, uh, and it was sad to think that now even Diana Rigg is no longer with us. It looked like she was having a blast in the role of Vincent Price's daughter. Time flies by too quickly. These movies are filled with so many staples of British cinema, so many familiar faces now long gone. And I was also thrilled that you singled out Terry Thomas. There was no one better at portraying a cad or a bounder. <laughs> I always look forward to Weirdhouse Cinema to find out what you've selected, and am also trying to catch up with your voluminous back catalog, the anthology editions. I think that's talking about uh, the episodes we do some October's of like anthology mm-hmm. of horror series and talk about science related to those uh, the, those episodes. Uh, But Jane says, the anthology editions are particular favorites as those take me back to childhood viewing in the 70s. A story from one of these involving hundreds of razor blades embedded in the walls of a narrow corridor still gives me nightmares today. So anything with a hammer horror, psychomania, man who haunted himself, Quatermass in the pit, Fibes vibe is good with me. And if any of your listeners can point me in the direction of a short film that was shown at a film festival in Leeds in the early 90s that involved a car driving ever downwards in an underground parking garage that seemed to lead to hell, I will be eternally grateful. Thanks again for a great podcast. All the best, Jane.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, ooh, well, I, I know that we have at least... Uh, I'm, I, we will definitely come back to more Vincent Price films, and I, I do, I did just purchase a Vincent Price film uh, for us to discuss at some point, but I'm not sure when we'll, we'll
0: continue the, uh, uh, the Vincent Price cycle. I have an idea, actually, Rob. We could do an entire Weird House Cinema episode just on Vincent Price TV commercials.
1: (laughs) We easily could. There's so many good ones. I figure at the very least, anytime we do a Vincent Price movie, you know, we can't just, you know, uh, rehash the the biography of Vincent Price each time. Each time it makes sense to instead dwell on different uh, commercials that he did uh, because they're all so fabulous. Um, uh, of the, the other movies that, uh, that are mentioned in this listener mail, um, yeah, Qu- Aquariumus and the Pit, or, uh, let's see, what was the, uh, U.S. name for that? I want to say it's like, um, how for many million years to Earth? Um, yeah, five million years to Earth. Uh, this, this one is one I remember as being a great film as well with, um, uh, with, with kind of, uh, yeah, by modern standards, perhaps unconvincing special effects, but, Within the context of the film, they work really well, uh, just very well done, and was very influential on a lot of filmmakers, including John Carpenter.
0: Ooh, that one's got Julian Glover in oh, it. Oh, nice. Uh, to mention uh, excellent uh, British character mm-hmm. actors. You know, he's uh, he's uh, Veers in The Empire Strikes Back, and he's the bad guy in Indiana Jones and The yes. Last Crusade. And, of course, he's Grand Maester myself. yeah. So anyway, thank, thanks for writing in,
1: Jane. Um, I should also mention that uh, our listener, uh, Susan, was very enthusiastic for uh, the abominable Dr. Fibes and uh, did like a running commentary about the episode on our, in our Facebook uh, discussion group. That's the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. Uh, if you want access to that, uh, go look it up.
0: Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, she she was very enthusiastic about this film as well. Oh yeah, shout out to that. I don't often peek in at the the Facebook group, but I did see that. And and uh, Susan, yeah, I really appreciate your your live blogging of the episode.
1: And uh, speaking of the back catalog of Weird House Cinema selections, uh, I will mention again that that really the best place to see a list of those would be at a blog I, ma- I maintain, uh, Samutamusic dot Uh, It's a very simple blog. There's nothing exciting about this blog (laughs) other than uh, I have done a a post for each episode that we've done of Weird House, and uh, it's a pretty good place to see what we've done. All right, this one comes to us from Aaron. Aaron writes in and says, Hey, Robin Joe, I meant to message you about this a few months ago, but I'm on a work trip now, listening to old episodes, so it seemed appropriate now that I have time. I was watching an episode of Mythic Quest, a series on Apple TV. In it, there's a scene uh, that has a frantic story writer stuck in a closet drinking. What is he drinking? The character calls it a Rudger Hauer. Port wine, <laughs> coffee lots of sugar, and I seem to remember other ingredients. I couldn't help but think that this has to be a connection to a new favorite movie of mine, Split Second. I was wondering if you guys have ever uh, had a deep cut reference pop out at you in some form of entertainment, like an article or movie. Thanks for all of the great content. I really appreciate what you do for all of us, Aaron.
0: This would be referencing the fact that in Split Second, starring Rutger Hauer, Hauer's character... Uh, he has a real sweet tooth. Like he's constantly chugging coffee with huge amounts Mm -hmm. of sugar in it, though. I don't recall him drinking port wine.
1: Um, No, but I guess uh, he might have. I just don't remember. (laughs) No, but I think that was the (laughs) thing. He doesn't drink alcohol, right?
0: He gave it up. Maybe he had, maybe he was sober now. Like he had quit drinking and replaced it with copious amounts of sugar and Mm -hmm. coffee. Or maybe it's in. maybe uh, this is the thing. Maybe it's
1: so deep a cut that it's referring to his character in Split Second and some other Rudger Hauer role that I'm not familiar with or have forgotten about in which he drinks a lot of
0: port wine. Mm, either way, that's, that's a good choice. Uh, do you remember how in later in split second, like his, you know, it's a, it's sort of a future monster buddy Mm -hmm. cop movie and the nerd buddy cop (laughs) they pair him with. He like gets turned into a copy of Rutger Hauer by some traumatic experience. And he also starts drinking the sugar. he
1: He becomes converted and he's like, this is the way now we, we, we drink sugary coffee. We eat candy bars and we carry around big guns.
0: What's the character's name? He's like, he's like Rex power or something. I believe you're thinking of
1: Detective Dick Durkin,
0: Dick yes. Durkin <laughs> that's not the exactly the... I was thinking of something more like uh I don't know uh, Johnny Magnum or something, <laughs> no Dick Durkin,
1: and of course Rutger Howard's character is Harley Stone. There's some good names, no, that's what I was thinking that's what i'm I was oh, talking about. Okay. Howard's yeah, yeah, yeah. character oh. name Harley Stone yeah, that Harley makes Stone, sense. yeah, it has got motorcycle
0: plus plus Stone, yeah, plus Rock Dick Durkin, that didn't mm-hmm. sound right at all, Harley Stone, of course. Oh, and he's got the motorcycle in his apartment, remember? It's Mm -hmm, in there, and like uh, the the guy just sits on it. (laughs) That was a good one. Okay, uh, does that do it for today? I guess that
1: does it. Uh, We're going to go ahead and close up the mailbag, but uh, hey, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. What are your thoughts on current episodes past episodes future episodes of stuff to blow your mind weird house cinema and so forth you have any responses to just listener mails that you've heard here uh you write in with uh, corrections suggestions everything's fair game we don't have time to to feature all the listener mail that comes in on the podcast but uh, we we do look at everything that comes in so uh keep it coming
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our regular audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson, and also to our guest audio producer this week, Paul Deckant. Uh, really appreciate you stepping in, Paul. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind dot
2: Network. work.